Please then turn, if you will, in our text today, which comes from Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you uh, for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, what we'll be looking at today is really, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you would think that for all who would call themselves Christians, we could be in in agreement upon it. That what Paul says in our text here today seems rather clear. What What it is that he's looking for, for believers to look like. But unfortunately, this is not the case. There are remain many disagreements upon what it is to live the Christian life. Now I'm sure everyone would agree that if you are a Christian, you are to live as a Christian. But that begs the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And that depends on who you ask. If you ask one, they might say, well, it means that uh, God wants me to be happy. God loves me. He wants my happiness. Yet, of course, their definition of happiness is not God's definition, but it's a definition pulled from the world. And so they continue to live a life of sin, of greed, of uh, fornication, of selfishness, drunkenness. And so the Christian life for them is one that is self-centered, a one that is self-serving. Yet on the other end of the spectrum, you might ask someone and they might say, well, the Christian life means that we live in solitude. You don't interact with others. You live separate from the world. Uh, You refrain from engaging in things that might, if abused, could lead you to sin. And so they they don't go to church. They don't fellowship with the saints. They, They don't watch TV. They don't touch a drop of alcohol. They don't use the Internet. Yet if you think about it, this life is also one that is self-centered and self-serving. Because they go beyond what God has called them to do in an attempt to seem more holy. They separate themselves from the people of God. This is not what God calls us to. You cannot live the Christian life alone. And so then the question remains, what is it to be a Christian? Who, Who has the right answer? Ultimately, God, right? Ultimately, God has the right answer. And He delivers His Word through His prophets and His apostles. And so, here we have Paul, a servant of Christ, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us what it is to be a Christian. And as Christians, then, we must understand it. 
We must accept it and we must live in conformity to it. And so what is it to be a Christian? Well, we're going to look at how Paul answers this by breaking it down into four characteristics which Paul says should be evident in the life of every Christian. And so we will look at constancy. We will look at unity. Unintimidated. As well as suffering. These describe what the Christian life should be about. And although we will look at constancy, unity, unintimidated, it is this, it is this last one, suffering, that we want to pay most close attention to. Because I'm sure everyone that we speak to could probably agree on those first three. It's that fourth one, suffering, that is oftentimes overlooked, or neglected, or even just rejected. Yet before we dive into our first point then, what I want to first say is that what I'm, what I'm saying here are not uh, four moral virtues that everyone can cultivate in their life. What we're presupposing is their faith. We're presupposing faith. We were all here in the, the first message given in Philippians. In verse 1, who does Paul say he's writing to? He's writing to saints. He's writing to those who God has separated, His holy ones. And so Paul is calling on those whom have Christ, who have believed to now live as such. This can only be found in those who have true faith, those who have believed in Christ, those who have repented of their sin, those who have received the Spirit. And now Paul's saying, this is how you ought to live upon receiving faith. And so what should characterize their life? First, we said constancy. In our English rendering in the ESV, which I'm sure we're, most of us, if not all, are using, <coughs> verse 27 reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This, let your manner of life be worthy. In the Greek, this word gives off the idea of living as a citizen. So, to paraphrase what Paul's saying here is, live as a citizen of one who has received the gospel. Live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Paul's saying here at the beginning of verse 27. And we can all understand this. We're all citizens of the United States. We live in Wisconsin. We each live in a particular city. And there are rules and laws in which we must obey no matter where we live. In West Dallas, we have other West Dallians here. Sometimes you get a little flyer, a little pamphlet. I get it attached to my, my fence and it, it kind of tells you kind of some things that you need to abide by as a resident of that city. And so they tell us, you know, how you throw out your garbage. What and how you can throw out your, you know, your recyclables. How long I can keep my grass. Uh, how long or how, how you can, uh, you know, how late you can have a bonfire in your backyard, Right? But there's all these things that you must do if you are a member, a citizen of this community. Right? Even if there isn't someone looking over your shoulder to make sure you do it. This is what you signed up for when you became a member of that community. And so this is the manner, this is the expectation of life they, they desire you then to have. To live in conformity to what you signed up for. And so this is kind of similar then to what Paul is saying. He's saying, whether I'm here or whether I'm not, 
Live as a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. Live as a citizen of one who has received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Remember, Paul's in jail at this time. He's not around to look after people, to be looking over their shoulder. And so you may have some who are saying, oh, well, Paul's not around. He's not around to see me. I can kind of live unlike I would if he was here. Right? Knowing Paul can't check in on them. He can't be over their shoulder making sure they, they live as believers. And we've, we've all had, uh, we've all done similar things. Especially probably as, as children. We can all remember being in front of our parents. And we were like little angels, right? And then as soon as our parents turned around, we couldn't help but misbehave. Or in front of our parents, we spoke very politely and kindly, but as soon as our parents turned around, maybe we spoke with a little vulgarity. Uh, in front of our parents, we treated our siblings really kind, but as soon as our parents turned around, we mistreated them. Right? We lived one way when they were in front of us, and we lived a different way when they were not. This is why some parents, they don't understand, they get the call from school. You know, little Timmy was misbehaving, and they come into school and they say, Little Timmy's such a good little boy. He never does this at home. Well, that's because little Timmy lives differently when you're not around. You see, but Paul is calling on the saints to live opposite of this. He says, if you are a Christian, you are to live with constancy as a Christian. To be a Christian at all times, in all places, and in all manners. Live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Whether I'm near or far, whether I'm present or absent, live as a citizen. Conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. As a Christian, you shouldn't be able to turn your Christianness on and off. Like, in public, I'm a good Christian. In private, I'm something else. You shouldn't be able to do that. Especially if in public you're, you're the good Christian because in private, that tells you more, that's more closely related to who you really are. And I don't know what you think that you're hiding in private, for God knows all things. You may be able to hide from your pastor. You may be able to hide from your spouse. <coughs> you may be able to hide from each other what it is you do in private, but you cannot hide from God. This is what Christ tells His disciples. After taking the Pharisees to task in Luke chapter 12, verse 1-3, through 3, He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The same is true of each and every one of us. Everything you feel, everything you think, everything you do, everything you act upon in private, God knows of. There is no hiding it from Him. And so we must be sure, brothers and sisters, to live with constancy. To always be living as citizens of heaven. To be using our bodies as instruments of righteousness. To be promoting godliness. This is what God calls us to. To be doing works of mercy. <coughs> works of necessity. To be spending our time privately reading, and praying, meditating. Also, for example, we are called to to, to, to have godly speech and conversation. Paul says in 
Colossians 4.6 Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know what, how to answer each person. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only as such that is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, brothers and sisters, at all times in everything we do, in our very speech, we are to be living as Christians, as members of that spiritual kingdom. Because being a Christian is who you are. Being a Christian is who you are. You are identified in Christ, with Christ. Being in Christ, united to Christ. It isn't like putting on a jacket when you go outside. I'm going to church today. I'm going to put my Christian jacket on. No, it isn't like that. Our our identification with Christ comes through faith. And through faith we receive the Spirit. And through the Spirit then we can live in a manner worthy of our calling. This is why Paul says, whether I'm here, whether I'm not, carry yourselves as members of this community. This is your civic duty as citizens of heaven. And so then Paul goes on to say, So that I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here is that second characteristic, that, seven, that second point, <clears throat> which Paul exhorts the saints to, which is unity. <clears throat> you see that if they are living as citizens of this heavenly kingdom, Paul is assured that they will be striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. This is what he tells the saints in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 15, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. You see, brothers and sisters, if you belong to this heavenly kingdom, if you are citizens, then we all ought to, ought to have the same agenda. The same agenda which Paul had which is to proclaim Christ, to magnify His name, to preach the Gospel so that sinners might be converted and that in it Christ in the Lord might be glorified. We're all fighting on the same team. We're all fighting under the, the same banner. What is, it that, what is it one thing that all good teams have? They work in unison together. You don't have those rogue agents who, who go off and do their own thing who flipped the script. Together as a church, we know who our enemy is. We know our enemy is Satan. We know how he tries to attack us, to infiltrate the church, to cause division, to cause strife, to get us to focus our our attention off of what it is God has called us to. That they would be those who would be jaded then by church life, who would not want to be in church no more. That it would break up churches. But you see, Paul says, this can't happen if we are of one mind and one spirit. If the goals of the church are all the same, if we are all fighting on the same team. It's only when we decide to focus our attention on ourselves that things go awry, that things go off course. In battle, if we are locked arm in arm and we are all marching forward with the same plan of attack, usually you come out unscathed. It is that one that we see in the movies who just charges forward under, under his own plan. Try, he wants to be that hero. He's usually the one that 
is destroyed quite quickly. We are to be a congregation. We are to be a community of believers. We are to be united under the gospel. Things aren't always going to be easy. Life for the Philippians wasn't always easy. That's why Paul's writing to them, knowing that they're going to suffer. That there are those who seek to have them follow after circumcision. To put confidence in their flesh. But no church is perfect. If we're waiting for the perfect church, we'll be waiting for Christ to arrive. Because only then will the church be perfected. And so things will come up. Situations will arise. But if we love God, if we love one another, we will do what pleases God. We will put the interests of one another ahead of ourselves. Yet what this ought to teach us, brothers and sisters, is that the Christian life is one of joint struggle. The Christian life is one of joint struggle. You can't strive together, as Paul says, if you're not going to church. You can't stand firm side by side with your brothers and sisters from home. You see, sanctification, this this growing in godliness, this being conformed to Christ, isn't just individualistic. It happens within the body as a gathered people. As we go through suffering and persecution and trial together, we grow together. As a church, we're being conformed together. This is what the saints are being exhorted to. To stand together. Because in it, it gives evidence to them of their salvation. And so this then takes us to our third point this morning. Which is unintimidated. As Paul tells the saints to stand firm. To strive together. In verse 28 he says, Do not be frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation which is from God. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is to be unintimidated. To not cower in the face of opposition. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear, brothers and sisters? That we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power. And we see this with Paul. Paul gives evidence of this to us, even in our letter to the Philippians here that we read. Most people in his position, we said, would have cracked. They would have thrown in the towel, frightened, scared, intimidated by what was going on. But Paul didn't. Such was not the case with Paul. But it wasn't because of Paul, it was because of God. This is why Paul can say that that, uh, this is a sign from God. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction in our salvation. That it is from God. It is not of us. He's saying, don't be intimidated by the false teachers. Don't be intimidated by those who would cause you to suffer. For when they try and they try and they try and they fail, you know what that is to them? It is a sign of their destruction. It is a sign of their reprobation. But to you, when these false teachers and others cause you to to suffer, when they try and try and try to get you to succumb and you don't, what it is to you, brothers and sisters, is a sign of your salvation. It's a sign to you of your salvation. 
that salvation from God and all that flows from it. This is why the Gospel advanced greatly with Paul and his imprisonment. He wasn't like others. He didn't succumb. And he said it was because of the power of God which he received through Christ Jesus his Savior. And people seen this and they believed. Yet Paul had confidence, not in himself, but in God, that God would do what he says, that he would supply Paul with all that he needed. That God would give Paul courage and boldness. He would not be intimidated. He would not cower under the pressure of those who wanted Paul to stop proclaiming the name of Christ. And we see the effect that this had on others. If you recall from verse 14, Paul says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, brothers and sisters, we can do this because this power is not derived from you and I. This isn't a natural power. It's from God. This is why so many Christians, under the, 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 the weight of the pressures of the world, will quickly change their opinion on so many moral issues and topics today because they don't want to be called names. They don't want to be mocked. They don't want to be criticized by this world. They want to be accepted. But not us. Not us. We will gladly take upon ourselves all these things if it honors God. If it honors God. For perhaps not today, brothers and sisters. Perhaps not today. Perhaps not in our lifetime. Perhaps not in our children's lifetime. But there will come a time when the pressure will be such that they will start to tell you, you can't preach that in church. You can't say that. That hurts people's feelings. That's considered hate speech. And so you must change what you believe and what you teach and adapt it to what we say is right. What we say is moral. What we say is good. And your option is to either conform or they shut your church down or that they throw you in prison. That day, one day, very well, might come. And so we must be preparing ourselves for that day to not cower to know that we are accountable before God. It is Him we serve. It is Him we obey. And God will not call us to do something in which He will not first equip us for. He will not call us to do something He will not equip us for. And we can have confidence in that. For we have the spirit of power working in us. We have the spirit of power working in us, which is able to overcome anything that man can throw at us. For although we are weak, God is strong. Think of the example of Moses. We can think back to Exodus. When God calls upon Moses and says, Moses, go to Pharaoh. Tell him that he is to let my people go into the wilderness and worship me and have a feast before me in the wilderness. What was Moses' response? He was scared. He was frightened. He was timid. He he felt ill-equipped for the task. But what was it that the Lord said to Moses? Chapter 4, verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I I have put in your power. Do all the miracles I have put in your power. Moses didn't have to be intimidated by the task. He didn't have to be intimidated by Pharaoh. For God was with him in his speech. God was with him in teaching him all that he was to do God was with him in giving him the courage that he needed 
to complete the task, not in his own power, but in the power of God. God will not leave us to ourselves in the battlefield. He will supply to us all that we need as Christians. And so now that brings us to our fourth and our final point this morning. In response to the question that I opened with, what is it to be a Christian? We have heard that Paul says that to be a Christian is to live a life of constancy, is to live a life of unity, it is to live a life which is unintimidated by this world. Yet finally, it is also to live a life of suffering for the sake of Christ. Yes, brothers and sisters, to be a Christian means to suffer. To be a Christian means to suffer. Now I know that to the world that blows their mind, this is foreign to what they believe. For in our days, in our times, it look, it, we, we search after healing and prosperity. This is what's elevated in our culture. Those who have the most wealth, those who are the healthiest, seem to be those who are closest to God then. But this isn't what Paul teaches, is it? He says, no, for those who have been granted faith, you have also been granted suffering. Yet why do you think that suffering is so neglected today? Why is it that instead of commending suffering for the sake of Christ, we look at those who suffer and say, those are bad Christians. They must be disobedient. That must be God's judgment upon them. And we look at those in good wealth and who have good health, and we say, that's what we've got to strive after. But yet, time after time, we can turn to Scripture and see that we are called as Christians to suffer. But why does no one want to suffer? This world will pay lots of money to travel the world to find you know, the latest health guru or the, the faith healer or the, or, the, or the prosperity gospel preacher. They'll search the world for these people. Yet this isn't what we're called to do. What, is, what does Peter say? Have we forgotten what Peter said in Acts chapter 3, verse 6? If you recall, Peter's walking by the, the temple and outside of the temple gate, there's a beggar who asks him for money. And what is it that Peter says to him? He says, silver and gold I do not have. But he declares to him, Christ Jesus. Look, at This is one of the preeminent apostles here. Peter. And Peter doesn't have riches. He doesn't have wealth. You see, all of Christ's disciples, all of the closest ones to Christ, were not the ones who were rich and of good health. They were the ones who were suffering. Christ's disciples were in fact promised suffering. They were promised suffering. Nowhere have they promised good health and good wealth. They were promised suffering. You see though the, the problem that we have in today's society, even within Christianity, is that we've lost the idea of cross-bearing. We've lost the idea of cross-bearing. Christians want glory but they don't want the cross. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, that you will not receive glory apart from the cross, apart from suffering. This is what Paul says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. See, we want faith. 
We happily accept faith. We say, yes, God granted me faith. He's given me faith. But Paul is saying, not only have you been granted faith, He's given you suffering. You can't have faith without the suffering. And so you say, well, I need more evidence of that. I'm not quite sure that we need to suffer for glory. Well, you can see what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. Maybe this is a little more clear. He says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. You see, brothers and sisters, suffering is inseparable from your adoption. Suffering is inseparable from adoption. They go hand in hand. Suffering is given to us. It's granted to be ours in our adoption. This is the same thing Paul says in verse 29. He doesn't say that he gives faith to all, but then only some suffer. He gives faith to, God gives faith to all, but only the, the bad, disobedient Christians suffer. No, he says, I've, God has given faith to all, and he has also given suffering to all. What it means to be a Christian is to not only believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Because, brothers and sisters, if you take away suffering, then you take away, you strip yourself of adoption. If you reject the fact that we as Christians are to suffer, you give evidence to the fact that perhaps you are not an adopted son or daughter. For this is what it means to be co-heirs with Christ, to suffer and then glory. This is what Christ Himself teaches. There is no glory but through the cross. Jesus tells His disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Jesus is saying you are not willing to suffer for my sake, if you want a life of ease and comfort, you have no place with me. But if you are willing to suffer, if you are willing to take up the cross for my sake, you will receive that crown of glory. Yet know that suffering is not a condition of salvation. Suffering is evidence of your salvation. The whole of the life of Jesus Christ was a Perpetual cross, so to speak. Christ's whole life, perpetual cross. And in that life, we are told that Christ in His flesh learned obedience through suffering. Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verse 8, we read, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And so I ask, are you greater than Christ? That Christ learned suffering, learned obedience through suffering, but we are to learn obedience through a comfort-filled, pain-free life? See, you must come to understand, brothers and sisters, that it is through suffering that you are conformed to Christ. Through suffering you are conformed to Christ, which is the goal of sanctification. It is through suffering, it is through the cross, that we have fellowship with Christ. It is through suffering that we enjoy the benefits of Christ. 
Last week, I heard, I heard Scott and Pam talking. And Scotty was talking about patience. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember word for word, but something to the effect that he didn't have patience. But he kept being put in these, these situations which forced him to grow in patience. This is the right understanding of, of suffering. God puts us through tests. He puts us through trials in order that we would produce what He desires in us. He's not going to learn patience if He's not tested. If He's just living a life of ease and comfort. No, you must suffer in order to learn patience. You must suffer to learn obedience. This is how God tests us, how He produces in us what it is He wants us to have. Yet we shouldn't desire suffering for the sake of suffering. I'm not saying suffering in and of itself is good. Like, please, let me suffer. No, but suffering is good in its effects, in what it produces in us. Conformity to Christ. Suffering brings us closer to our Savior. Suffering, in effect, in a sense, seals our, seals our adoption. It, it, it is a, a confirmation of our adoption in Christ. And yet suffering varies in degrees and in kind. But brothers and sisters, we all must suffer. We all must suffer. The church must suffer for the sake of Christ. One final passage on suffering. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example so that you might follow in His footsteps. It is important, though, before ending, that we, that we say that we do not copy, we do not reproduce the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ are redemptive, they are final, they are complete, they are done in Christ's office as mediator, and so there is nothing that we can add to them. So our sufferings are not imitation, but our conformity. And conformity is what we should desire because it demonstrates to us that God is working in our lives. Suffering to this world has a whole different meaning. They can't understand how Paul could rejoice in suffering. They can't, they can't understand it. It goes against the natural mind. But to you and I, it's evidence of salvation, of our adoption, of our fellowship with Christ, of our crown of glory that awaits us. Yet it's natural to in suffering, to feel pain, to feel anguish, to feel stress, to feel anxiety. But if we know what it means to be a Christian, to live that life always, constancy, to do it together, unity, to do it even under duress, unintimidated, and in suffering, then we can say the same words which our brother Job said. So as we close, please first turn to Job. Chapter 1. Let us see Job's view of suffering. Remember in chapter 1, the Lord allows Satan to sift Job and Satan takes everything essentially from Job. He takes his ability to make money by killing all his livestock and he takes his very own children from him. Yet what is Job's response? Look at chapter 1 verse 20. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I should return. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with doing wrong. Let us, brothers and sisters, in our suffering, in our cross-bearing, in living the Christian life, be able to say those same glorious words with Job. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh, but blessed be the name of the Lord God forever. Please bow your heads with me and pray. Father, we thank You for Your your Word. What a reliable Word it is. For Lord, You you test us in order to produce that which You desire in us and also to, to, to give us evidence that You are working in our life, that You are answering prayer, that You are giving to us that which we are asking in accordance with Your will. And so, Father, we thank You that in producing patience, in producing obedience, You are strengthening our faith in You, demonstrating to us your steadfastness and your love and your faithfulness to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work within us all that you would desire in order to bring us into conformity with your Son, that we would be continually sanctified, that, Father, we would not succumb to the temptation of this world, that in it we would remain strong, that we would stand together in unity, that this world, not being able to overcome the church, would see in it their destruction. And that, Lord, in the church as standing together for the sake of the gospel and not giving in would see the power of God working in us, working in us, and that being evidence of our salvation, that being evidence that we are adopted sons and daughters of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we are co-heirs with Him, that we will share in that crown of glory if first we suffer. And so, Father, we thank You that You have granted to us both faith and suffering. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in both faith and suffering. And, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.